back from a hiatus. I think I've not done a podcast now for about three months. And in that time, amongst other things, uh, I focused on films, going to the cinema about five to six times a week, which has been intense, uh, watching a lot of Blu-rays and various streaming things at home. Uh, it's my biggest source for inspiration photography. It's the thing that makes me want to actually go out and take pictures, even if it doesn't really carry into the work that I do. It, it makes me want to go and do it. And one of my absolute favorite films, maybe ever, from my absolute favorite director of all time, Denis Villeneuve, is June. And I'm very, very, very honored, nervous, and excited to be able to speak to our on-set photographer for June, amongst many other films. Um, so let's just set the groundwork. How is it that you found yourself interested in photography? What made you want to be a photographer? Oh, so um, my interest in my... My, my answer to this is so um, unfair, I think, especially for people who are listening, wanting kind of, you know, looking for advice. Um, I was born into it, literally born into it. My father was a film still photographer, very well known, very respected. Um, and I've never known anything else. Um, I grew up on film sets Um running around after him, you know, with bags of film and, you know, the, the exposed bag in the left hand, unexposed in the right, you know, just that was my little job running after him. It's the safest thing I could do, you know, on set with him. But I just knew I always wanted to be there with him. Um, I have a sister who obviously raised the same way, but she didn't. She wasn't kind of, you know, she would come to visit, but I would, there was a drive in me that wanted to do crew hours if my dad was night shooting, I wanted to be on the night shoot, um, you know, and of course they'd all sort of say, oh, chill, you can, we'll set you up a little bed in the camera truck or, you, you know, if you want to go to bed, or you want to go home early, of course you can. I, I wasn't having it, you know, seven years old. And I was like, well, if the crew haven't wrapped, I haven't wrapped, you know, really uh, something in me knew this is where I belonged. Um, in terms of photography, I don't know that at that age, I, my interest was my own. I think it was probably the influence of that was what I knew and that's what my dad did. And that's, was familiar to me. Um, it wasn't until I was a teenager, we were, again, I was, you know, inflicting myself upon the, on a film crew when my father was working on Band of Brothers. And, um, I really started to enjoy when he left the cameras in my hand and I really kind of started to find my own angles and take an interest in what I was doing with his, with his right. tools. Um, so that's probably where I, I realized that, you know, the apple had fallen off the tree and landed quite close. Um, but when I got to um, sort of my late teenage years going into university, my father really pushed me away from it. My parents were like, don't do this job. Don't follow you know, don't follow this path. It's unpredictable. It's, you know, there's no money, there's no respect. There's no, <laughs> they really put me off. And, uh, so I kind of, I've always been, um, an old soul in the sense of, I, I listen, I take the advice of people who've been there before me and, and try to learn from their path. And so I set about a different path and, went the production route and thought, you know, well, I'll aim for being a producer because then you get to be the boss and right. 
do things the right way. And, um, you know, you're part of the whole crew, then you're, you're, you don't have to be just part of one department, you're part of the whole thing. And that all really appealed to me. Um, and so I came out of uni with this great, now I'm going to go work my way up. And I was very, very adamant about not taking handouts from my father. I wanted no sign of nepotism anywhere near me, uh, especially, you know, in, in the kind of Hollywood film industry, it, in the US, there's a lot of um, stigma that comes with the nepotism. Okay. A sort of assumption of that's how you, that's why you're here. Right. Versus in the UK, there's a real family business going on in the film industry where if, if your parent is in the industry, people actually see you as having been taught by the best. They, right, right, they right. know then that you've apprenticed, that you've been taught well. So it, it, it's a good thing. Right. Um, but I was in the US at the time. And so I really tried to avoid any kind of offers, handouts. And so I went the production route. I went a different route from my father. And I um, worked really hard for a decade going through the production office, working in the studio. Um, and as a result of um, a series of tragedies in my twenties, I, I kind of hit a wall of realizing I wasn't happy where I was. I wasn't doing something that really fulfilled me. And, um, you know, even the progress of it, I didn't, I couldn't see where I was going. So, um, I up and left <laughs> and I went back to England to get a sort of sense of home and a sense of place again and reconnect with my roots and just by the nature of the turn of events, um, my father ended up taking a job that was in the UK about six months later. So great, really excited. I was at the time busy working in a pub, you know, yep. doing whatever you need to do. He, he ended up on a, a Star Wars film that was much bigger than your average movie, obviously. Right. <laughs> Um, even in terms of stills, they had a whole department. Um, and with that came sort of management um, beyond just being the photographer. So he really, he needed a pair of hands to help him manage. And having had the production experience for so long and also being trained by him in photography, he felt like I was the perfect fit for that. Um, and so did the team above him. So they brought me in for that and it just, it led to me picking up his cameras again. And, you know, I thought it was just going to be a sense of nostalgia. Hey, this will be fun to, to do another one together. Yeah. Um, and, and it just went far beyond what I could have imagined. You know, we, we were so busy that I was just trying to cover uh, shooting this or shooting that because there were so many things happening all at the same time. I was really just trying to be an extra pair of hands. But as we went along, some of those images, um, David was actually pulling out over his own right. as selected imagery. Um, he just thought some of them were better angles or I'd covered something he hadn't or, um, and when it reached the filmmakers, um, I got called to set and thought I was in trouble. Right. Right. <laughs> I got a, somebody came to my office and said, uh, you need to come to set CJJ as in JJ Abrams. And I, I didn't even think JJ knew who I was. So, um, the idea that I was being summoned to set was terrifying. 
And when I got there, um, JJ and my father and Simon Pegg, who was on set that day, mm-hmm. were all standing around these big printed select images. And they sort of all stony faced looked over at me and summoned me over. And uh, I was shaking. I was absolutely like, oh my God, I've done something wrong. I'm, I'm going to be told, you know, I can't be on film anymore. What I did, my, yeah. you know, my brain went to extremities. And when I walked up, JJ said, um, you know, I've been told by David, these are, this is your handiwork that I'm looking at. Um, cause I had taken, I'd done a lot of Photoshop work that, that David wasn't necessarily doing, um, me being the digital generation. And I had taken a lot of the green screen out of these images, which was way ahead in the timeline of when visual effects would do the same with the actual film. So JJ was looking at this one image of, um, a character on a kind of flying speed bike and, uh, there was no structure underneath it. It was, it was as it would be in the movie. And so um, I kind of nodded, thinking he was going to tell me everything I'd done wrong. And uh, he reached across the image and he shook my hand and he said, well, thank you for showing me my movie. Oh, nice. I haven't had a chance to see it like this yet. Um, So they were thrilled. And, and, you know, Simon and David started laughing because they'd all thought it'd be really funny to scare me with these stony faces (laughs) and, you know, the behavior. Um, And it turned into JJ basically saying, look, we've spoken to the producers and we're all very happy for you to keep shooting. We want you to keep shooting. So cover second unit, cover alongside David, you know, keep going. Amazing. So, yeah, that was probably the moment that I kind of went, oh, okay, hang on a minute. I my brain hadn't gone down that road yet. This right. was, this was not where I was aiming. And, uh, so David and I sat in a pub in the town he grew up in, in this cute little, little area in England. And, um, I looked at him and I said, but you know, you told me, you told me not to do this, but I think I'm going to anyway. <laughs> and, uh, he, he obviously shifted and he, he stepped back and said, this is, I couldn't be more proud to watch you follow this path. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that was how it sort of came to be. Um, not your typical entry. No, no into that's, this job. that's certainly a little bit different from, I think my story and a lot of other people's stories. I mean, yeah. one thing I would ask based on that, I'm a, I'm a wedding photographer primarily. And whenever I tell generally men that like photography, that I'm a wedding photographer, I tend to get the same wince from people that are terrified oh. of the, I think more terrified of dealing with maybe dealing with brides and family members and the one-off situation that you're in, like it's okay. a, it's a once in a life. Well, in some cases, I mean, I've shot a couple of weddings and they are such high pressure that I will tell you, I considered it for a brief moment in my lifetime. I couldn't do it. Right. And, and I, that, that does tend to be sort of the thing that people say that they couldn't do it. And I, I, I definitely understand that. I, I have a very strange personality defect, which is, I, I don't really think it's ever been diagnosed. I'm sure there's a very, smart person listening that can tell me what it is, but basically I don't tend to feel nervous. Oh, you're so lucky. I, I just don't. I mean, maybe talking to someone like you, I feel like there's pressure that I don't want to end the call and have not gotten everything I wanted, but I don't, right. I, I, at a wedding, I just don't really notice it. I spend half of my time thinking about films I want to watch or <laughs> like what I'm going to have for dinner or, you know. I feel what, like you shouldn't be telling people this. <laughs> I, it's honestly, it's so bizarre. It's, it's, I've been at the top of, uh, a ceremony photographing brides and grooms in like a really important moment. And I've had second shooters that I'm teaching 
And they're saying, oh, what are you thinking about when this happens? I was like, I just I tend to just do stuff. That's, that's surely because it's instinctive to you. I would agree. However, it was that way from the beginning when I didn't know what I was doing. I just, it was, it was a bad quality to have when I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. I, you know, I look back at, uh, I, I, I was in a job, as I said, in production and I was very good at it. And I used to think that it was because I didn't actually emotionally attach to it that made me good because I could stand up and say no. And I could right. kind of take, you know, risks yep. um, because I wasn't afraid of it. Um, however, I'm incredibly emotionally attached to my job as a photographer. I mean, if I don't get a good shot that I, that I know in my head I could get, or I can see, and I just can't manage to make it work because of the angles or whatever. I mean, my mood, <laughs> My mood shifts. I get really upset by that. It really affects me. And then if I can get a great shot, you know, I'm happy for days. So I'm very emotionally attached to it. But in this context, it makes me good at it. So right. I think it can go either way. I do think you have to be able to do a job. If you're going to do it for a career, you have to be able to love and hate it at the same time. Oh, gotcha. And the more, the better. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The lows need to be as low as possible and the highs need to be as high as possible. Yeah, because you do you balance out in the middle. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, you do have to be emotionally attached in that sense. Um, well, my question there would be, if you came from such a young age, just being immersed in the situation, was there a point when you went solo, not to make a Star Wars reference, but is there a point <laughs> when you went solo that you were like, oh, it's just me? This I'm now a photographer on a film set, as opposed to being like I'm with my, you know, I'm with my dad or whatever. Interesting. So, I think it actually happened while I was working with him, because, you know, I I, I realize how it sounds. I I sound and look incredibly privileged, and I am to a certain extent. But with that privilege comes a whole lot of expectation and pressure far more than some of my counterparts who've worked their way up from small films or TV into smaller features and then worked their way up to these big features with that pressure on them. Um, I got dumped in the deep end. Um, my intention was not to do that when I finally decided to do Belmont. I very much promoted myself as somebody for the dailies and smaller, smaller independent films um, to try and, as I said, not take a hand out. I wanted to really prove myself. Um, but the opportunities that came my way at the time were because I was shooting alongside David, we became a bit of a duo and the filmmakers really enjoyed having our two different perspectives. Right. So we did several films together, which was unheard of. And, and really, I feel very lucky to have had that with him. Um, but during that process of working at first under him as an apprentice and then side by side with him, he was in a position with these filmmakers where he's got 60 years of legend behind him. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to hold my own next to him with, without that, yeah. um, you know, I've got the experience in terms of I've spent my whole life, you know, 30 some years on film sets. So that's like home to me. That's not a new territory. But having the, and, and shooting is also not, I've you know, been shooting my whole life, but having the pressure of a campaign resting on your imagery 
yeah, that, that pressure came along and having him around certainly took a little bit of that pressure off in the sense that if I screwed it up, I knew he was somewhere shooting and getting something great, but the expectations of me were terrifying. You know, there were so many times that I was timid and I didn't, you know, so you, in this, in set photography, you really have to, you have to get in there and you have to find a space and you have to make space for yourself. And it's never the angle you want. So you're really trying to find an angle and communicate with the people around you to get in there. Yeah. Oftentimes you're going to end up in the eye line. That's just the nature of it. The best images come from being in the eye line. Um, and you never quite know what you're going to get in terms of performers, filmmakers, crew around you. Some people are wonderful. They don't care about eye line. Some are very, very resistant to it. So I didn't get the opportunity to test those things out and figure out what, where, and how I literally got chucked in the deep end and thrown in front of Tom Cruise. Right. So, you know, (laughs) you learn fast. Baptism by Um, fire. Yeah. But that absolutely, I was terrified my first few days, you know, as I said, on, on Star Wars, I was, I hadn't, I wasn't there with the intention of, trying to be a photographer. I was just trying to do my job of being helpful to the team. Um, and it, it had a wonderful outcome, but stepping into them, we, we went straight on to mission impossible because it was the same producers and they were like, yep, great. Bring cheer. This is going to, you know, we family duo here. Um, the pressure then stepping onto the mission impossible set was huge, absolutely huge. And I'm fortunate that David, I say fortunate, but I guess I earned it. Uh, David trusted me because he had taught me how to shoot. He had seen my work. He knew I could do it. So quite often he would sort of, you know, let me go and hold back and let me step in for some things. And the, the, yeah, the first lesson I had to overcome was that timidity, that sort of, um, I don't know. I don't even know what the fear was. I guess it was the fear of not getting the image, fear of getting yelled at, fear of, um, it was like, an, there's a name for it that I'm, it's, it's blanking me right now. Um, but it's like an intruder syndrome. Imposter. Thank you. Imposter syndrome. Um, I very much had that. I, I felt like, what am I doing? But isn't isn't photography incredibly prone to imposter syndrome? Because when you, I mean, obviously your your beginning is very different. But for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, they buy a camera, they go out on their own, they take pictures of things, they come home, they look at the pictures themselves, rinse and repeat. It's a very much a solace. It's a, it's it's an isolated thing. You, generally, photographers are independent, whereas a film set, anything to a video, it's a lot more collaborative. And with with photography, it feels like when you're then part of a moving production of whatever nature, you're like on your own, but the people are dependent on you. And it's a very weird dynamic. Very weird dynamic on a film set. Um, yeah, you know, in, in the years when I wasn't pursuing photography as a career, I was shooting dance photography, portrait photography, um, all just for the love of it. And then coming into a having that pressure of the campaign on you. But as you said, you're, you're part of the film team in terms of you're part of the crew and you're hired to be there and you are part of the moving circus. Absolutely. 
you're a department of one in amongst bigger departments. Right. So yet it's incredibly um, isolated. Um, David and I were lucky for those few movies that we got to do together to have, you know, somebody that you can even just turn to and be like, look at this image I got um, and have them understand what it took to get that image. Yeah. You know, so many of the crew think you walk around and go, Oh snap, got it. Oh snap, got it. Yeah. And, <laughs> doesn't work like that. Um, It's a challenge just trying to do the job. Things are not lined up for you. Things are not lit for you. Things are not, you know, there is no open space for you to get whatever angle you need. It's a real challenge just to find a good frame without being a disruption to what's going on around you. Um, And very much somewhere along the way, I, you know, I haven't figured out why or where this has happened, but on-set stills photography used to be sort of a respected equal part of the filmmaking process. And nowadays, most crew don't understand, this sort of new generation of film crew don't understand what we do. And because the people we work with on a day-to-day don't actually get to see the outcome, the imagery that we're shooting until months later on a billboard or a bus where it's out of context and we're long gone from their memory. Mm-hmm. Very few of them understand what it is that we're after, what we're trying to do. Um, I've had so many people show surprise that I'm on set all day, every day. Right. I don't even know how to explain to them why they're surprised. I mean, I, why wouldn't I be? Um, well, cause it only takes a five hundredth of a second to take a picture. So you only need to be on set for five hundredths of a second, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because I know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, because I'm psychic. Walk yeah. in, snap, walk out, and that's it. <laughs> exactly. But there is a real um, sense of that. So so there's this kind of undercurrent of your nuisance right. on set a lot of the time. Um, I've been very fortunate. I've worked with some incredible film crews who have not been that way, who very much see you as part of the team, who make space for you, who get you in. Um, you know, the there are certain crew members who you interact with day in, day out, who do become family, um, uh, who have, you know, I some of the imagery I've shot, I would never have gotten if they hadn't sort of, you know, squished over and, and let me in, in a way that was uncomfortable and difficult for them but the cooperation and the team effort were there. So it, it is, it needs to be a team job, but it's, it's a, it's a really strange position. Yeah. Right. It, it falls in the crack. Well, I feel like, I mean, I was very fortunate um, about a year and a half ago, I think it was right at the beginning of the apocalypse to have a conversation with uh, Nico Tavanisi, who was the onset photographer for the Irishman and Joker and lots of Aronofsky films and, one of the stories he told me about was the Joaquin Phoenix Joker dance in the bathroom, the very, very, very iconic scene from the Joker, that the the day that that was performed, it was improvised, he was already offset, so he wasn't there to photograph it. But when he came in the next day, Joaquin Phoenix found him and said, did you get photos of that? And he said, no, I wasn't here. So he re-performed, had it relit oh. and re-performed the entire thing. And I'm just curious, is there, is there any like really standout moments for, for you? Like if you were to pick one thing that was just a big deal for you to photograph? Can I just say, I have so much love for Joaquin Phoenix right now, hearing mm. that story. Um, <laughs> oh, there's a couple, there's a couple. Um, you know, I, 
was really fortunate with with films like Mission Impossible, where you know, and, and the Mummy, where Tom Cruise really sets the tone. He sets the tone for the filmmakers, for the other cast. He really believes in stills, um, as he should. You know, he's trying to sell his movie as well as 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 make it. So he understands the importance of getting those image, images while we're shooting. So he he's very giving in that sense as well. Um, I've also had the opposite where they really don't understand why you're there and that can make it very challenging. Um, you know, I had a, I had a scene on the good liar with Bill Condon and it was, the camera was all the way up against a wall and we had all three cast members looking almost directly at the camera because they're all looking at a piece of art together. And there was, and it's quite a, a heavy scene in terms of the dialogue and, and the undercurrents. So I understood that these actors weren't just delivering lines. There was a lot of emotions in all three that they were trying to figure out this dynamic. And there was just nowhere for me to be that wasn't like two feet right in front of one of their faces. It was just, it wasn't good. Um, also because of where the actual camera is, I couldn't, I couldn't get the right angle. So even then it wasn't worth it to be, you know, if I was going to kind of go up to them and say, look, can I, may I, it wasn't worth it because the shot wouldn't have been worth it. So I actually went to the first AD and director who were standing together and I, I said to them, look, this is obviously a great image. It's all three of your main cast members all together in this environment, um, beautifully lit, et cetera, et cetera. And they, you know, sort of nodding and agreeing with me. And I pointed at the setup and I said, there's just no way I'm going to piss one of them off if I try and be in there. And then, you know, they looked over and they agreed with me quite quickly. Like, yeah, okay. So I was just going to say, can I, can I step in? Can we all be prepared for me to step in just at the end, move the camera out of the way very briefly. I'll step in, I'll get the frame and I'll be, and then done. But, but let's get it before they disperse. And the AD looked at me like, yeah, great. We can do that. That shouldn't be a problem. And Bill, the director, he, he sort of cocked his head, nodded and said, yeah, okay, great, great. Okay. And we all walked away. And then Bill came running up to me afterwards and was like, let's run the scene. Right. And I, you know, if it's coming from the director, of course, I would never ask for that, but, but absolutely. Yes, please let's because what happens in those moments is, you know, if, if we just ask the three actors to look at me and pose for the camera, it becomes quite wooden. Mm-hmm. Versus if you can get it mid-performance and you know how to time that image right, you can get the emotions coming through on each individual face. Um, so very respectfully said to the cast, you know, we're going to do this image afterwards and they were all okay with it. And then when when we went to go do it and, and then Bill said, let's run, let's run the scene. And, and even the actors were looking at each other like, really? <laughs> but still, it's okay. So they did and it was great and we got a really great image, beautiful image from it. But that, you know, I was so grateful to Bill for understanding that that was necessary. Um, and he's, yeah, he's one, that's one of the few experiences I've had where that's happened. Um, Dinny gave me a couple on Dune. Yeah, do you know what I'm even getting, I gotta be honest, even just you saying his first name, he's by <laughs> a mile my favorite director. And um, to be talking, you know, 
I was so excited by the prospect of this phone call. I've realized as we're doing this, as we're doing this podcast, that I have put about 11 sugars in my tea accidentally. So I could chew my tea right now. It's ridiculous. But that's where I was thinking through. I mean, I've been to see... another tea. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Honestly, I've, I've been to see June, I think, four times now. Um, wow, great. I, I just love his... Uh, he, I have a problem with Denis Villeneuve. He made me cry on a plane, which really, really made me look quite stupid. Because, I mean, you can see me right now. A lot of people don't know what I look like. But to see someone that looks like me crying on a plane, I think would probably be quite threatening. Oh, I'd be very concerned. <laughs> yeah, so I think his ability to take a big, broad subject and just tie emotion through the middle of it is just unmatched. And he's a phenomenal director. I, I wasn't going to talk about June, but let's now. I was going to okay. wait, to, but let's oh, talk. Let's talk about no. Let's talk about June. We're there. I'm. I'm emotionally there I'm now. Give him the credit where that was due. You know, he, he was. He was. He and actually the cast. I have to. I don't want to. Um just focus on the directors, you know, the, the cast. I've had some really giving cast as well who have done similar things, you know, um, I'm biased, but Rebecca Ferguson has, has given me that sort of, you know, you can be wherever you need to be even while I'm crying and sobbing and, um, and, and allowing me that access. Um, well, on the, on the subject of Rebecca Ferguson, I think she's got maybe the most photogenic face in the world. Yeah, I think she has so much story to like. You, you can almost. It's hard to. She's almost like a human Kuleshov effect. Like, you, <laughs> you always think that there's something really interesting going on behind the eyes, even when she's not doing anything. I've watched interviews with her when she's probably just thinking, "God, I can't wait to be done with this interview and go and see my family or do whatever." But I'm like so invested in the story that's in her eyes. Yeah. I think she's such a fascinating person. I but she's, she, I think she is. She's a storyteller. You know, she's she's more than just an actress. She is a storyteller. Is she quite intimidating though? Because in interviews, I've she's very keen to speak her mind, which I absolutely love. But I feel like she'd be maybe lovely when you approach her, but in the build up to approaching her, she'd be quite scary. Oh gosh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if I'm if I'm too invested to be able to answer that. I didn't find her intimidating when I first met her. Right. She certainly speaks her mind. Yeah. But I personally, I respond very well to that. I, I that's what I like about her. That's yep. what drew me to her. But yeah. So I suppose I could imagine. I could imagine maybe some people would feel that way. I don't know. I think it's just I've got an idolization now because yeah, that's what I mean. I, you know, it's like you when you when you add in the fame and I, yeah, I do, again, I, I that's hard for me. I don't um, celeb culture does absolutely nothing to me in, yeah. in that sense. I think a because I've grown up around faces and names that you know I didn't know the difference, um, so I know that they're just normal people. Well, most of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's that's a question, right? In, in in the job that you have to navigate such big personalities, and and in some cases, not big personalities. They're just not. I mean, I've met a, a, a fair few people that are celebrities in one sense or another who are completely down to earth. They're not really even aware of themselves, which is kind of a fantastic place to be. I think. What is, you know, is. <laughs> I mean, Nico did tell me that there are some people that are just mind-numbingly difficult to get anything from, and it's a very rare thing. People probably think it would be a very common thing because I think there's an idea that anyone that has any notoriety or instantly is full of themselves, which I don't think is true at all. I think it's more 
security, really. But how do you navigate a situation where you've got talent on set that doesn't want to cooperate with you? How do you navigate that to get what you need to get? The answer to that is different every single time. Okay. Um, I think that I think to do this job, you really have to have an ability to read people to a certain extent, to understand the differences between people that not every lead actor, not every lead actress, not every filmmaker and not every camera operator or boom up, or they're not all going to be the same. And every film and even within a film, you know, things shift every single one of those is different. And I, you really have to cater it to, to the individual, you know, some want to know that you're there for them. Some want to know that you're going to disappear. Um, you know, I, I, Ian McKellen was a really interesting one for me. He, he's a stage actor, I think at heart. Um, I mean, obviously he's done a ton of films and, and is very good in them. I think he feels more comfortable on the stage. I, I right. don't want to speak for him, but it, that's the way it seems. And I think having a photographer on set next to the camera all the time is to him a sort of strange thing. Um, so when we worked together, you know, the first few weeks, he was a little bit uh, prickly with me in the sense of sort of why, why are you always here? Why are you always pointing <laughs> that camera? I mean, he didn't say that, but that was the sort of tone that I got. Um, so I made it, I made it almost a joke. You know, I started hiding from him. I would find ways to be almost in his eye line, but he couldn't see me. And as we got, you know, towards the end of the production, there were a couple of times where he'd start to walk off set and he'd walk and he'd see me as he walked off and he would just laugh because he realized what I'd done. And he, he actually started to sort of respect that. It became a bit of a banter. Right. Uh, like, there she is. I found her, you know? Um, so that sort of softened him and, and it became funny for him. And, and so that was a positive experience then. Um, but I think I've also come across a lot of, um, on both sides of the camera, filmmakers and cast who have had previously bad experiences with photographers, whether it's on set or in a photo shoot, I, you know, I couldn't speak to that, but they've definitely come with an attitude towards me expecting something that I've then not been. Right. Um, you know, I, I worked with Russell Crowe for a few days on the mummy and I had been told he chucks photographers off set. So I was really nervous. I was like, God, okay, well, you know, this, how's this going to go? Because obviously I need to be here and, and I'm photographing crews as well. So I, I can't sort of, just not be here. I can't hide away. Um, so I made a point for the first couple of days of, of shooting to really stay hidden. And I would wait until I kind of hide behind other crew until they yelled action and very carefully bring my lens around during the scene. I mean, slowly, right. Yeah. Not to distract. And knowing when the scene was meant to end, if they didn't cut early, I would remove and disappear before cut. Yep. And I did this for days. And uh, eventually, I think it must have been day three or four, he came up to me, just walked straight up to me and said, oh God, here we go. Here's the moment. Put his hand out and said, what's your name? Nice to meet you. I like your vibe. Oh, nice. And it was his way of saying, I see what you're doing. It's not lost on me because he catches it all. But thank you. 
thank you for respecting the space. Thank you for, you know, it was his way of kind of saying, you're good. You're good with me because you've shown me that in return. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's really an individual approach every time. So to go back to June then, uh, we, we spoke before about, before this started, that I'm not a particularly big gear person. You said you same yourself. I think that the majority of people that work in photography, unless they're selling gear, don't really care all that much. The best gear is the gear that gets out of the way. So gear aside, in, in terms of what you were using, what are the challenges of shooting something that's in an, a ragingly hot desert where you're only getting a small window to shoot every day? And what are the challenges? So that's very, those are very specific challenges, that description. Um, you know, sand, sand. <laughs> Sand, sand, and more sand. Um, as a crew, I think we had sand coming out of our ears a year later. Um, I still sometimes I pull out certain parts of a gearbox that I haven't used on the last couple of films, and I open it up. It's just, it's just sand that I it doesn't. I don't know where it's come from. Right. Except I know it came from there. You should sell it. You should bag it up and sell it to nutcases. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, now I could. Um, so yes. <laughs> In that specific scenario, sand and heat, because you want to cover your cameras with weather gear to protect from the sand in the sandstorm when you're standing next to a massive fan that's blowing sand at you. Hmm. Um, the, you want to protect the camera, but then in that kind of heat with the sun on you, then inside the protector, the camera's overheating. Um, so it is a shoot for as long as you can in the sand and the heat and then get the camera somewhere cool and come back for the next, you know, it's, it's about sort of timing yourself in and out. Um, uh, yeah, tricky, tricky. Um, the, in terms of sort of without going into gear, I, the thing I find the hardest, the, the most challenging scenario for me is when we're doing fast paced action in very low light. Um, because obviously for a moving camera, that's great. For a still camera, in order to get a clear shot of high action, you have to be shooting at a high speed. Yep. Um, I'm not talking about you know tracking with a car or something, but like a fight scene. To get those mo- movements without a ton of blur, you need to be shooting high. So if you've got no light to begin with, I mean, you're cranking it up as far as you can on your ISO and it gets very grainy, very noisy. Uh, it's yeah, that's the challenge I have the most often. Um, I haven't yet found the gear that lives up to it in a way that I would be satisfied. Right. There are versions that make do, and you know, if I'm if I'm lucky, I can wink and nudge the DP into giving me a little little extra light. <laughs> <laughs> Bribe him with some sand. Exactly. That is very rare. Um, yeah, that's probably my, my biggest onset challenge. I mean, one thing that does come across more and more from this, this is 172 episodes I've done. And I've spoken to people from all across the board, all different genres, all different sort of levels of professionalism or, or whatever. And um, something that really comes out is that most photographers seem to spend a lot of their time being annoyed about the shot that they didn't get, as opposed to being happy about the one that they did get. Oh, oh gosh. Oh, what a shame. I think that's quite common. I, I certainly feel that way. I come back from a wedding and I'm in a similar situation. 
I tend to compare wedding photography to war photography. Okay, we do the same. We do the same. Right. Film. So yeah. you, you don't get a lot of say in a lot of the circumstances and you're kind of depended upon to tell the story. Yeah. Um, and the narrative's running whether you're there or not. So that in that sense, we I feel like... You don't get retakes as well. So, like, no. Be- <laughs> I mean, you know, every so often someone gets remarried and you get rebooked and that's awkward. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a funny situation where I find myself, like you were saying about being really emotionally invested in your, in your job and in your photography, that I come home and I sit down and I go through images and I'm like, if I'd have just... My last oh, wedding, yeah. if I'd have just not been given this stupid angle by the priest, then I could have got so much better out of the church. And there's, there's times where like the location's perfect, but I'm given no permission by the people running the event or the location's absolutely ugly, but I'm given complete free reign. It's like, I almost want to be restricted here. <laughs> that's, that's very much applicable. Are you a chaos or an organization kind of person? Do you like the chaos of everything or do you really try and, because you're regimented in it at this point, you've got to be. I like the chaos in the sense of, I like not knowing what we're doing that day in terms of a visual, right? I know what's on the script and I know what's on the call sheet and I know, okay, we've got a massive fight scene in a, in rain effects. So I, I know sort of what we're going into, but the emotions that come out of the cast and the angles that we shoot at, I don't know until we're there. And so the visuals are, you know, sometimes you see something on a, on a sheet that sounds like it's going to be amazing. Um, you know, on, on King Richard, we shot a a scene in the um, Compton tennis courts in the rain with the two girls playing in the rain and to show up and see that you're okay, this is cool. This is going to be great. The rain effect was so heavy. I could barely get a shot. Right. I mean, you know, there were a couple of rehearsal takes where they turned the rain off. And so it looks wet and you can tell it should have been raining. So I, you know, I got something usable in that, but the rain effects were literally, and it was meant to be for the scene. It worked, but it was beyond anything photographable. Um, those ones I think I find disappointing. Um, you know, it's, it's not should have or shouldn't have. It's more, that it didn't allow for that. It didn't, yeah. it didn't live up to what I thought it was going to be. But then sometimes you come in on a day where you've got two people talking, having a really basic conversation in a cafe and something just lines up in the most beautiful way. Um, so, you know, you do have the balance. There are days that you're expecting the worst and you get the best and, and vice versa. I think, um, while I'm shooting, while I'm on the job, yes, I absolutely spend a lot of my time going, oh, I should have done this, or this person could have just moved over half a, half an inch, or, you know, if, if, if. Absolutely, I spend most of the job doing that. But once I get a little bit of distance from the end of a project, you know, I look back at June now, and there's one or two images that I look at and go, I know what I was aiming for, and I didn't quite get it, mm-hmm. but... Whereas the rest of them, I can't even, I can't remember if they, you know, if that was the case, it's now I look back and I just know which images I like or don't like. It, it actually changes the the frustration changes for me. It becomes more about what images they choose yep. because I'm not part of that process. I, you know, I give my selects and oftentimes that's what they do use, but there's so many uses for film photography across the board. So whether it's for different departments or different campaigns, um, different articles. 
that there's always a surprise factor for me. You know, the King Richard posters came out and I didn't know what images would be on those until they came out. Yeah. Um, fortunately, those ones, I'm re- I'm so happy with the ones that they use, but sometimes you see images in a magazine and you think, why, what? Yeah. The frame before and after that were so much better. Or like, I gave you such beautiful imagery. Like, why do you use that? That's so boring. You know, that, that happens quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, to your to your point, I, I, I one thing I will say is that no one on earth has been sworn at as much as the back of my camera when when I'm at a wedding. And I actually got called out last year at a very small, because of COVID, a very small wedding where there was a, a I, honestly, it was 2020 and someone had a handy cam and I don't know how to cope with that. And they continuously moved wherever I went, they moved in front of me because I think they'd figured if oh. I'm photographing something, if they stand where I am, they get... I'll do the scouting essentially and they get the shot. Yeah. And there was a point with some music on where I used a word that I absolutely can't ever use ever in public that begins with a C and the music stopped about half a second before I said it. And I had to then do the best acting anyone has ever seen, pretending that someone behind me had said it and that I was really (laughs) offended by it. You've just given yourself away now. Well, at this point, it's all good. They're married. They've got kids. They don't have to worry about okay, me. Great. <laughs> Very quickly, for, for those of us that are desperate to be you, but don't have the opportunity to be on a film set and do what you're doing, if I could switch jobs with you right now, I'd give a left leg for it. Out Catch of interest. Me in the day and it's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> um, out of interest, the, the shooting of like BTS, the, 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 the crew doing their thing, the actual sort of dirty frames of a scene being shot where it's a film set, not, uh, not you're photographing the character, if that makes sense. Is, yeah. is that happening simultaneously and you just kind of are picking moments throughout the day? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, right. This is another reason, you know, that people say, oh, do you really need to be here all day, every day? Yes. Yes, I do. Because I'm not a psychic. Um, and one of the things that I think makes me quite good at the job is that I am, you know, as you said, I'm... I, you, you made mention of what we were talking about, that I'm not a gear person, right? The camera's in my hands. I'm not the newest, fanciest. Um, they're great, but I'm not like, oh, look, I got a new lens. Oh, look, I got the new version. I, I That's not at all how I function. Um, for me, it's the frame, it's the moment, and it's the emotion in it. So those moments I find are... The best images are the ones that are authentic. So whether I'm on set or shooting portraits, um, I try, I, you know, I prefer to use natural light in portraiture just because I find it's less contrived. Um, And I find that a lot of times the shots that I prefer that are the best in my personal opinion are the ones where I've kept shooting in between giving direction, right? So I've given direction, something's happened, shot it. They're then relaxing out of that moment or into the next. And those are the moments that I'm, that I'm busy looking for. So I don't ever take my camera away from my face. I might be laughing with the subject or we might be chatting, but I'm still shooting. Um, Because actually what they don't realize is I'm looking for those in between moments. And it's similar for me on a film set in that the, you know, the scene as it plays out, obviously is very important for selling the film. That's, that's key. I'm, I'm looking for the moment where 
you get the emotion of the scene, you get the story being told in a 2D image without revealing anything and while still making those people look good, right? You're not going to pick the frame where their eyes are closed and their mouth is open. You're, you're looking for those in-between moments where the emotion's still coming through. So that's very much capturing the right moment. Um, and again, in between when they say cut or sometimes during a scene, you know, if I've, if I've got what I need of the scene itself, then yeah, I'll back up a few feet and see if there's a way that I can show the scene being filmed with the camera, especially if it's a sort of dynamic scene. Yeah. Um, you know, that pe- people love that. People really are, especially with social media and what it's done over the past few years of people seeing sort of behind the silver screen. Um, and the fans love that stuff. They really, the true film fans want to know the process. They want to know the people behind the camera. They want to know the crew. Um, they want to know the interactions. So yeah, that stuff is really important as well. Um, I have been called a BTS photographer before and I find myself correcting people because that is not what I am. Um, I'm an on-set photographer. So, well, photographer first and foremost. Exactly. In that capacity, I'm on set and I'm photographing everything in front of the camera, behind the camera. I'm trying to get you a poster shot while also giving you the director interacting with his crew and his cast. And I also, you know, if I look to my right and the key grips on a dolly with a flare of light across his face and it's beautiful and it's a cool moment and he looks great doing it, I'll shoot that too because there's a photograph there. Um, I try not to force the photography. I try to photograph the moments that I see um, and you just don't know when those moments are going to come, you know, it's yeah. right place, right time sometimes. Um, but the right place, right time is being there in the middle of it all. You just turn up for that five hundredth of a second, then you go home. It's easy. Exactly. So straightforward. <laughs> I have had a couple of moments where I've gotten a shot that I wasn't expecting, looked at the back of my camera, looked at the guy next to me and gone, yeah, got it. See you later. <laughs> Which, those are very rare moments and they feel great when they happen. <laughs> so you, you photograph performance in terms of like on stage as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have. Um, I, I spent... Um, years photographing live dance performances um, and uh, got a rare opportunity to go on stage with Rick Astley and and a friend of mine who was performing with him and photograph them at a music festival and that was really out of my wheelhouse and and cool and fun Um, it's a very different dynamic being in a live performance I think very much like at a wedding probably you know if the moment's gone it's not coming back you're not going to do cut retake and readjust so you have to be able to kind of go with flow and you can't then... shout at a wedding once more for safety yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> exactly or on stage yeah sorry rick could you just sing that line one more time for me <laughs> so how does how does your process work differently or how are you a different photographer because on set lights will tell you the boom operator is pointing at the person that's probably quite important to a scene cameras are all telling you where you're supposed to be kind of looking you can't get confused Whereas on stage, I feel like there's a lot more chaos theory. There's a lot more dynamics between people that are on stage or people in the audience. How do you find yourself being in the right place? So in terms of the live performance where I was on stage with them, I think my, I think my number one for that was trying to make sure I wasn't distracting, right? Because if I'm on stage, all of these people can see me too. So trying to make sure that I'm staying behind musicians and and in the shadows while the lights move 
Um, it's sort of dancing with them in a way that you are staying away from the spotlight, um, but focused on it. Um, when you're photographing from the audience side or from off stage and photographing a performance, which, you know, with the dance was very much the scenario. Um, I used to, I'm trying to remember now, I, I think I used to have like certain, I would watch the rehearsals always. And that's, by the way, that goes for on a film set, on a stage, no matter what or where, wedding, I will always watch the rehearsal. Yeah. Um, the more knowledge I can come into that scenario with, the better. So once I know from the rehearsal kind of what's going to happen, what the moments are, I can, I have an idea of which moments I'm after. And so I'll look at where the best angle is for those moments. And if I can get from one to the next, then I'll clear a path ahead of time. So I would have an empty seat on the left and an empty seat on the right and an empty seat in the middle that would be my go-to. And I would try not to run a back and forth as much as possible, but pick my moments, pick which performances are the best place to be. Right. And then kind of focus from there. And then, I mean, on top of all of that, which is already just an insane amount of, of things to be kind of controlling when you're talking about film sets and live performances, you also do like personal work. So what itch is doing the personal work scratching that you're not scratching when you're doing all this other photography? Great question. All of this other photography at the end of the day is client-based. So you're not photographing based on your own message. Um, and when I say message, I don't mean sort of political or statement. I just mean based on your own um, kind of what you want to evoke, right? What you instinctually react to. Yeah or want, would say or promote. So while it's absolutely still an artist's vision, you know, walking around the set of Dune, I'm absolutely looking at it from an artist's perspective and from my own eye. Um, and I would very often call for things that weren't part of the scene, or I would find an angle that we weren't shooting on the camera. I try not to shoot exactly what a camera is shooting all the time. Um, see, sometimes it's lined up in a certain way that that is the shot that I need. Yeah. And that's what I mean as, as a client base, you know, I'm selling Denise film, not mine. Yeah. So I have to make sure going in beforehand, I'm on the same page as Denis in terms of what his visuals, what the story is he's telling and how he's telling it. And I have to keep up with that throughout the production to make sure that I am channeling that in how I photograph it. Um, because that's then what the job is. The itch, I suppose, in the personal work is being able to let go of all of that and simply pick up the camera because you are feeling an attachment to something. You are feeling a response to something as an artist that is 100% to do with you and your vision nothing else, nobody else, not for anybody but yourself. Um, and it sounds very selfish when I put it that way, but I think that's sort of the heart and soul of art, isn't it? Is, is to feel something, to emote it through a medium. Whereas 
set photography is the business side. Yep. And it, and it is bringing the two together. And I really hope I can help people see the art in set photography because it is absolutely there. But you, you know, same way as if you're, if you're hired to do something, you're doing it for somebody else. Yeah. Versus if you're just picking up your camera and going in the streets and photographing what calls out to you, that's that itch. Um, I'm working on a project at the moment that I've actually taken the rest of this year off to do. Um, and it's unlike anything I've shot for film. Uh, completely it's not stylized in a way that's sort of you know it's not particularly special lighting it's all sort of street style portraiture um with a kind of serious undertone but a sense of humor which is very much me right that's you know that's my kind of personality type that i handle handle the dark parts of life with a sense of humor otherwise i'd fall apart so um, this project that I'm working on at the moment, I'm doing for charity, um, which has been really interesting because the moments where I do have that artist moment of these aren't good enough, this isn't, this isn't up to my standard, this is terrible, this is awful, the world can't see this, right? Which is the real artist's problem. Yeah. I have to, I power through, I have to power through those moments because I'm trying to do it for a good cause. I'm trying to do it to support mental health. So that's been a real motivational factor for me when that moment hits. Um, so that's been a really interesting kind of process. Well, actually to talk about that a little bit. Um, so something I've never spoken about on the podcast and it probably, I'm not really someone that tends to put things out. Uh, I think there's too much uh, sharing on the internet, maybe yeah, in, a little too much sometimes. Yeah, maybe in the kind of the faux positive way where people kind of create yeah, identities. Um, I think that's a huge issue at the moment. But yeah. uh, that aside, without me criticizing everyone else, uh, so last year with what was going on with the uh, with the lockdowns and and the pandemic, I actually had a full blown mental breakdown. Um, I lost a, an unbelievable amount of money with my business and didn't know when that was going to come back. And I'm someone that's very, very much a prisoner of a moment. And when you're looking at four weeks, that could, that might as well be 40 years. Like I can't, my brain can't fathom what's happening after that four weeks or, or whatever. And then when the second one hits, it's just, you know, it's, it's like, it, it's becomes multiplied by the last time you went through it and so on. And I, I legitimately had not in a, not in a kind of like vernacular sense, I legitimately had like a full blown mental breakdown. My wife, who is already already runs a residential care home and looks after people, especially through pandemic. She lived at the care home for a month to care for people that were on end of life. Incredible human being. She, on top of all of that, had to deal with me being a complete mess and not functioning particularly well and having some pretty dark thoughts and so on. And on top of the fact that obviously I'm fangirling slightly over the fact that you shot June and you've met Denny Villeneuve, I also uh really can't explain how much it, it actually does mean to see someone's caring about mental health at a point when everyone wants to just be damaging each other's mental health. It's nice to see something where uh, we're realizing that there are worse things going on than just trying to make other people feel horrendous so that you feel better about yourself. So 
if you want to go into that and hopefully we can drive some donations and yeah, that oh, will... sure. Yeah. Why not? Um, I'm really bad at fundraising. Really, really bad. I'm here to help. I, I'm not good at asking for money. Um, <laughs> you explain it. I'll do the demands. Okay, great. <laughs> good teamwork. Um, first of all, let me just say well done to you for getting through that. Um, I, unfortunately, I think you're not alone. I think that has been the case for a lot of people in the past 18 months is people have really hit breaking point. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I had some tragedies in my twenties that I have hit breaking point before Mm -hmm. in a very different context, obviously, but I have seen what that looks like, feels like, and at the time didn't get much support for it because, and, and I can see it now there wasn't, a lot of understanding of it. Um, so I lost friends and I lost what I thought was my support system because I went into this dark place and that carried with me. Once I got myself through it, picked myself up, went to therapy, went to grief counseling, um, rescued a dog, um, you know, all these things that, that helped me, reshift, moved back to England, um, you know, followed what my heart was telling me and, and sort of trying to tap into a more authentic place, um, and, and focus on positive. Right. Um, I, I look back and I realized that a lot of the people that I was angry with at the time, because they weren't there for me, didn't understand didn't have any real understanding. And I, I think there isn't a way to teach people what grief or a mental breakdown feels like. No one's ever going to really understand that until they experience it themselves. But I think acknowledging, talking about these things without a stigma is the most important part. And the thing I, that I took away from that that helped me get better was learning how to express it, learning how to talk about it. And the way that worked for me at the time when it was so uncomfortable for me to open up and and say, you know, I need help. I'm hurting this. I don't know how to handle this. The thing that got me to be able to do it without falling apart was a sense of humor. So for a good couple of years, I had a very morbid sense of humor. Yeah. Um, I got a little tattoo on my arm as a memoriam to the people that I'd lost. And when people would ask me, I don't try not to do this anymore, but when people would ask me about it, I would describe who it was about. And, uh, and then I'd finish by going, yeah, but they're all dead now. Right. In a very sort of sarcastic tone that would make me laugh and sort of get an uncomfortable laugh out of the person I was talking to but it would break the ice for me to be able to talk about it. Um, And bit by bit that shifted into a less sarcastic and a more sort of gentler approach for me to be able to realize I could talk about these things and not lose everyone around me. Um, So I have really over the past decade thrown myself into um, caring for mental health and, um, I really think you have to do that for yourself before you can help anybody else. Yeah. So I hope your wife is taking care of herself. <laughs> um, well, that's actually the thing that really helped drag me out was that I, I don't tend to like too many people on this planet. 
but I really, <laughs> really live for my wife and to, to realize that I was, you had to, I had to convince myself of how much of a detriment I was mm. to then force myself back into functioning. Cause I mean, I got to, I got to a point where, um, I mean, the, the absolute sort of crest of the wave was uh, some abuse I received online last year, and I found myself sat on a railway bridge. And it's like, oh, yeah. no, no, you just no. you find. I think last year was just a very compounded situation very, for a lot yeah. of people, where you can probably take five or six bad things all going at once. I think we now live in a horrendous time in the sense of what media does to mental health. I think that in England, we should be very strongly looking at what the news is doing. I, I think 24-hour news is probably the second or third most evil thing ever invented. Um, I think that there should be a tremendous amount of culpability. I'd like to see the license fee taken away from the BBC and have that same money put into mental health rehabilitation. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? There's there's a lot of money getting thrown around, in, but in all the wrong places. And I, I really think that the, the the for me personally, the way that I feel like we have to approach that mental health is is talking about it. Yeah. You know, I I think in my case, I had a very specific source mm-hmm. of grief. Um, for me, it was very compounded and there was a lot that I had to work through to understand how to process it, but I could point at what was causing me grief. I think there's so many, especially in the last 18 months scenarios where people don't necessarily know the amount of anxiety that they're holding. They don't know what's been building up in them. They don't know the long-term effects because you can't really pinpoint it. You can't point it out. You can't say this specific thing has upset me. This specific thing is making me feel not good. So I think there's a lot of confusion in how people are feeling. And that, if you're not aware of what it is, if you haven't kind of really tapped into why you're feeling, why you're feeling, then you can't solve it in the right way. You know, you're never going to make those feelings go away. That's not, that's, and I think impossible, but to be able to learn how to navigate them in a way that's going to help you get through them and find a positive place in the outcome of it. To be able to do that, you have to be able to talk about it in order to be able to figure out what the issue is. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't have a, as intensive a breakdown as you did, but I definitely had some wobbles over the past year. Right. Um, and what was strange for me, as I said, having been through that kind of rocky place before, what I found really strange was this time I couldn't pinpoint why. I could, you know, okay, fine. We were in a pandemic, but we're all in that. So why am I feeling so unsettled and freaked out and angry? Like, what am I angry at? Who am I angry at? Yeah. So being able to call up a therapist, express that and have them help you navigate your own thoughts. You know, I always say, I, I said this to my parents when I, you know, they're an older generation and I was trying to get them to go to therapy. I was like, it's amazing. You have to do this. And I said to my dad, you would go and get a massage if your muscles hurt. Yep. Look at it like a massage for your brain, for yep. your heart, for your soul, because that's taking on just as much stress and weight as everything else is. And it will have a physical outcome, whether that's you unleashing your anger at somebody else 
or on yourself. Yeah. Um, anger, hurt, whatever it may be. So I really, I feel like the conversation is, and the education is where it needs to start and it needs to start young. You know, I was really fortunate, um, at the high school that I went to, uh, between 15 and 18, I moved around a lot as a child. Um, I call myself a film brat because like military kids who have to move for the job, you know, my family moved a lot for the job. And, um, when I was 15 to 18, I was in California and the school that I went to had a program that was a bit like a weekend camp. Um, but it was like a therapy camp and it was like this safe space for students to talk amongst each other about everything from school and anxiety to, um, abuse to sexuality. I mean, it it was, unheard of for me and really set the tone for me as a young person to go down that route. And I I wish this existed in every school in the world, because I really think that's the age group that you can start teaching them how to navigate these things early because it's only going to get worse for them. Right. Like life only brings more stress, um, and responsibility. So the, the team that I'm, that I'm actually raising these funds for is a local community um, organization in the UK who go into schools and they're not doctors. They're not coming from a, from a sort of a psychological, um, I don't want to say clinical is not the right word, but they're not coming from a, a medical perspective of we're going to prescribe you this and you're going to be diagnosed with that. That's like a psychiatric view, right? You can just drug the problem out. Yeah. They come from a place of personal experience. Yeah. All been through some, some version. And what they're doing is they're going to school, speaking to young people and saying, Hey, look at me. I was right where you are. I felt what you felt and I'm standing here and I've, I've made it out the other side. So can you let me show you how, let me show you how you can do that and show you you're not alone in how you're feeling and, and navigate those thoughts and, and, really educate and show them that it's not the be all and end all. There are ways to get through it and, and to come out in a positive place, um, which I think is just incredible. And um, they're called the self-esteem team. So that's who this is all going to, um, but obviously doing it also using photography. So how are you, how are you using photography for that then? So it's, it's a portrait series that when we first went into the lockdown at the very beginning, um, everyone kept saying to me, oh, you're a photographer. You should um, go and photograph the empty streets and go and photograph people queuing for toilet paper. And I just remember like, no. First of all, everyone with an iPhone's doing that. Yeah. Secondly, that's depressing. Mm-hmm. And I, the photography that I do from, from my gut as a personal photographer is not that kind of messaging. Um, I have full respect for those people who who take most incredibly moving photographs, especially sort of war photographers and, and the like, and photojournalists who are, are uh, heartbreaking imagery, but it's so necessary and so important. They have my full respect, but that's just not who I am as a photographer. Um, I, I want to affect perspectives and I want to uh, challenge the norm and express beautiful things. So 
I took my camera to a sort of street, I can't even call it a street gathering. It was, you know, the neighbors would come out to their front stoops and we'd all bring our own glass to try and have some sort of social interaction. And um, my neighbor's eight-year-old, blonde, blue-eyed, beautiful little girl was wearing these silly face masks that you can get the, you know, the cheesy sort of jokester face masks that you you hang off your nose and they have somebody else's mouth on them. Yep. And she put on one that had an older male black face. Yep. And it's it's pulling kind of a funny expression in the image. And so she sort of matched it and, and sort of came at my camera with this enthusiastic look in her face. And it made us all laugh. This image was was funny, but for me, it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And the more I started taking, the more I could see it of this juxtaposition of age, race, gender, identity, all being shoved into one face. So, you know, to show somebody an image or to bring up a topic that doesn't personally associate to somebody, there's always a wall up. There's always a, a barrier between the two. As I was saying, you can't experience unless you experience it yourself. So what these images did was when I then showed them to people that it was their own face with this juxtaposition now built into their own face, it was sort of like, you know, the phrase of standing in someone else's shoes. It was standing behind someone else's mask. So the more I've shot, the more different topics have come out. So those, you know, the ace race, age, gender, but family and the definitions of masculinity and feminine femininity, excuse me, have come out. Um, you know, one lady put on a, a male mask and when she looked at the image back at herself, she was stunned by the fact that she looked like a replica of her son. I mean, it was literally her son's face yeah. because you know, genetics are this sort of crazy miracle that we don't really think about. We all take for granted. Um, but here she was able to look exactly like her son just because she added facial hair. So, I mean, it literally covers all bounds and and the conversations are in every which way. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm hoping that these images will spark conversations. So every page of the book will be a different kind of conversation. Um, some might apply for one person, another might apply for another. Um, I'm hoping that everyone sees themselves in some way, shape or form, either in a mask or in the face behind it. Um, and that these conversations continue, you know, if, if someone's got this book on their table and they flip open to a page with a group of friends and they're just chatting over an image, the conversations that can come from that, if, if people are willing to talk and listen to each other have been incredibly profound. Mm. Um, so hopefully I can translate that onto the page in the form of this book. And then all of the profits from it are going to the self-esteem team. So what I'll do is I'll make sure that I make a very public link available when this goes up okay, and thank you. for any kind of repeat viewing and stuff. And if we could all uh, for, even if you're not going to do it for me, if you could please do it for other people out there that are just not having the best time of things and you'd be amazed at what can bring people down or what can lift people up. And if you could all go out and donate, because there's a million other things that you're wasting money on with Amazon, put some money towards something useful. Sure. I want to end this uh, on a, on a positive sense, because I know that this can be a very heavy subject for people when I want to kind of head back towards just, it's, it's my podcast. It's about me. It's my special day. <laughs> 
Aim back to June. <laughs> exactly. That's where we're going. So there's uh, a couple of images I want to ask you about the taking of, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, there's a, an image, an incredible shot of Charlotte Rampling, who I think is phenomenal in June. She does the ceremony with Timothy Chalamet where he puts his hand in the box and he feels the pain. And I'm not going to say more than that in yep. case other people haven't seen it four times like I have. When it comes to photographing something, it's a very dark scene. When you see it in the film, it's a very darkly lit scene, not dark in tone, but, but actually in light. Is that a situation where you go in, the lights are all set up, you take a few pictures and then you, I don't want to be mean, but scurry away and let them carry on? Or is that, do you get them to bring the lights up? Do they light it differently? Do you reposition anything? Again, really depends on the scenario. So, so I'll go with that one very specifically. The tone of that room is dark for yep. the film. So I don't want to go too far. You know, I don't, it doesn't make sense for me to then sell a brightly lit scene because that's not accurate. Um, if it is too dark, like if there's a lot of motion in the scene, and it's just too dark for me to capture that motion without blur. I may ask if, if I think it's worth it. And I think it's the kind of scene that's going to sell something in this case, it was one of the few scenes we have with Charlotte. So I knew it was important. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, I might say kind of, Hey, can we grab a very quick still? And I'll turn to the DP and say, look, we're going to do the still. Would you mind just lifting the light for me? 20%, 30%, just to give me enough. If you've got a DP who understands and is giving them the, quite often, you know, Greg Frazier was the DP on June and he would have happily, he would have offered that beforehand. You know, right. he used to joke, we used to joke about how dark his sets were. So he was always very generous in saying, if you need that, just say, so we'll lift the lights up and we'll be prepared for it and we'll, we'll get it done. Um, sometimes if what I really need is just a portrait of somebody then maybe I can go to the gaffer and simply say, Hey, at the very end of this take, can you just jump in with me? I'm going to ask Charlotte for a still. And can you just bring a bounce? So then we can just bring the light in right on her face. And I don't need to worry about the whole set. Um, I think in terms of that actual scenario, I didn't have to do any of that um, because it was quite a still scene, even though it's very, yeah. a very sort of deep and emotional scene. There's not a lot of movement in terms of the character. The, the tension is in how static it is. Exactly. Yeah. So I didn't, that wasn't such a concern. I could lower my speed for my camera and, and capture it without having to add any light to it. Uh, one image I do want to ask you about, it's probably my favorite image of yours, is uh, a shot of Rebecca and two wonderful ladies walking behind her in stride towards the camera from June with the full yellow, I would say Arabic, Middle Eastern themed. Themed dress. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's a, it's an editorial image. It's a movie set image. It's just, it's got so much expression and power. Uh, tell me about that image. So uh, this is one of those images that I really have to give so much sort of, um, credit, gratitude to the team around me because the way we shot that is it, they're coming off the ship and it's, it's a walking shot. So the the way they've shot is they've got a camera on a dolly, which the grip is tracking with her. So the camera and, and Rebecca walk together. Um, and we did this with each cast member. And because it's quite a close-up shot, there is nowhere for me to actively be to get a good shot of that unless it's a behind the scenes because they're going to, tr they track for so long that you eventually see everything behind her. So there's nowhere that I can be that I'm going to end up either not being in the shot or getting in the way. 
Um, and in that scenario, um, the key grip, Guy Micheletti and um, the camera team were incredibly generous and offered me a seat on the dolly, which means he's now tracking my weight as well as what he's trying to do. Wow. So we did a couple of test runs so that he could, you know, adjust accordingly so that he gets the right kind of tempo. Um, and it also means that the cast member, um, and as I said, we did this on Timothy's as well. The cast member is then going to have me right in their face. Like I'm right next to the camera because I am on the dolly with it. Um, and usually when I do that, what I try to do is like, I put a black hood up and I just become the camera. So they've just got two lenses as opposed to a person yep. as much as possible to disappear. But I do ask first, um, cause that can be very distracting, especially if they're trying to walk. Um, and you know, on June, like, like everything else about June, which was just such an incredibly collaborative experience, both, you know, in front of and behind the camera, um, they said that's fine. And I, and allowed me to, to attract with them. Um, so I was able to get an angle that is editorial because it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm up in there with her and you can also, I also got the movement because I did it rather than a shot after the take where we, you know, stand still and everybody poses, I'm able to get that movement because I'm on the dolly tracking with them. So I'm getting that wind. I'm getting the costume flowing. I'm also doing it mid scene. So I'm getting her emotion. Um, so from, from a set photographer's perspective, that's the most ideal scenario that not only can you be there in the moment that that imagery is presenting itself in all of its best forms, because they're giving it for the scene. Um, but also you've got a team around you, both sides of the camera who are collaborating with you and allowing you the access to, to get something like that. So yeah, I love that shot as well because of the whole story that comes with it. Two very quick questions to go about that okay. because I've Part not been on the film yeah. set. I've not been on the film set. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. I should explain parts then. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's literally what you're doing. So are you shooting silently and, yes. and are you machine gunning? to make sure um, that you get it. Cause obviously that's a situation you don't want to ask them to do it five times. Yes and no. Okay. So silently in a shot like that. Yes. Um, if I could have been further away with, or if there was like crazy wind machines, then I don't need to, um, because then they can't even hear. Me. Um, but those scenes were quiet and there was dialogue. So yes, absolutely shooting silently. Um, the second part of that, um, and my machine gunning, um, Yes and no. I'm shooting it on um, what I, well, my camera is called continuous low. So it's mm -hmm. not a single shot, but it's also not super fast. So it's like four or five frames a second. So this is like a Sony. And I'm, that one I'm shooting on the Fuji. On the Fuji, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the Fuji is great because the controls are on the top. Yes. So I don't ever have to take that. I don't have to be distracting and take the camera away if I need to adjust something mid take. I don't have to give up the whole take to, yep. to worry about that. I can literally just take one hand up, shift a button and come back down without anybody knowing about it. Um, so yeah, so that was uh, four to five frames a second. But what I do is I know I don't want to waste frames. Um, I think that's, you know, a little bit the old school growing up with film. Um, even though I don't shoot on it anymore, I do still have that sort of training of, knowing again, watching the rehearsal, knowing the moment where 
you know, she looks around when she's doing that walk. It's no good to me to be shooting when she's looking away, that there's no frame there for me. So I am waiting for the moments where she's lined up in a way that's useful to me. And then I might hold the button for, for maybe two or three frames to try and get the sort of perfect moment. You don't want to get the eyes closed or that sort of thing. So you're, you're trying to kind of countering for either side of that. Um, but no, I'm not like machine gunning the whole way down the track. Um, that would be a waste of, waste of time, waste of energy, waste of frames. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to be incredibly predictable and go to someone I've already brought up, but photographing Rebecca Ferguson in terms of not the on set stuff, but the more editorial sort of headshots and. Oh, the, do you mean the stuff? For June or separate from the separate, in the, the separate stuff. Okay. Um, the the process of directing someone that is that well versed in being in front of a camera. How does that go, and how much of that is dictated by their personality, and how much of it is dictated by yours? So, ah, uh, this is a tricky one for me because Rebecca is my real life best friend. Wow. So I have a shorthand with her. I'm trying to take myself out of that and give you an answer of what it would be like if we didn't have that. Uh, <laughs> that's really difficult. Um, well, what, explain the shorthand then. Like, I mean, obviously don't give away anything you don't want to give away or say anything that you, you know, don't incriminate do, yourself, but. No, 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 no. I don't have to, I don't have to, um, because I know her and understand how she thinks and feels. I'm not coming at it with a, Ooh, I want to be cautious of you. Whereas if she was a stranger, I might've come in and been like, okay, so talk to me about how you want these images to look. And do you have a side you prefer? And what sort of message do you want to portray in these photos? And here, take a look at this. What do you think? And do you mind? I'd like to move your hair this way. Like, do you mind if we just do this? Whereas with a record, I can be like, you know, do this. All right, move that. Oh, no, no, no. You're giving me that face. Don't give me that face. Give me this face. So it's, it's a, that's what I mean by a shorthand is I don't have to, um, I already know that there's a level of a knowledge that I'm and familiarity that I'm bringing in that, um, allows me to speak to her. In, if I say in a certain way, it sounds like I'm rude to her. Not, not at all. It's just that I know ahead of time what, what to pull out of her and how to do that right? versus if I'm walking into that same scenario with somebody I haven't photographed before. Um, I try to get a little time with them beforehand alone away from the circus and, you know, speak to them individually from, from me as the photographer to they as, as the um, actor filmmaker subject and understand how they feel in front of a camera. Some people see a camera, they want to pose. They want to give me a show. Some people shy away from the camera. So again, it's going to be a different scenario, isn't it? If, if they're really difficult and really don't want to be photographed, then I've got to come at them very gently and find a common thread with, between us that, that convinces them to be comfortable and giving Okay, so to, so to that end then, something that's come up a lot, and it's, it's a really, my favourite photographer of all time, if I could embody a human being, I mean, if I could have your job, that would be great. 
If I could <laughs> embody a photographer, it would be a wedding photographer called Ross Harvey, because I think he does exactly what I want to do with a wedding. He just happens to do it in like Lake Como in Italy, and I'm working in Kent or somewhere. So it's a bit of a difference, but not that I'm not that I'm bitter about it at all. Um, but he <laughs> he told me something. I went to one of his workshops, and it was there was a moment when my soul just got destroyed because I'm a very no nonsense person. I grew up in a non spiritual household, a non universe household, a non religious like it was literally you are a little fat ball of flesh, get on with it. That was, that was how you were sort of brought up. Like, get a job, do your thing. That was it. So when someone starts speaking spiritually, I struggle because my immediate thing is to revert back to, this is nonsense, get a job, earn some money, shut up. That's literally, and I have to fight that really hard. And I've become a more, I wouldn't say a more spiritual person, but I've become a more understanding person of those sorts of things. But when I walked into his workshop, I paid a fortune to go to his workshop. And the first thing he brought up was, that you can control the universe with your mind if you find the right frequency. And I was like, no, talk about photography. No. I want to, like, no. <laughs> um, but one of the things he did say, and it kind of lined up, and it's actually really true, and it's saved my career and on a couple of occasions, is matching energy. Ah, oh, yes. And understanding whose energy to match in a particular situation. There are some people that when you photograph them, they will be negative and dour. And like you said, maybe even like shy or reclusive from the camera. And it's like, sometimes those people need you to join them with that energy. Sometimes they need you to, to like yank them out from the abyss. Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously Rebecca Ferguson is a bad example if you already know the energy and everything like that. But on a film set, as you've mentioned Russell Crowe, I'm sure he's a mix of incredibly hilarious and fantastic to watch and terrifying in different sort of ways. Um, Tom, yeah. Cr- Tom Cruise seems to be like the nicest guy in Hollywood. I know that he has a bad rap from people, but he seems to be someone that's genuinely always committed to what he's doing. So committed. Which, so is, commi- which is rare when you see some of, the, some of the movies that get put out where you can tell people are phoning in so hard they almost did it via right. Zoom. <laughs> how, how do you go about matching the energy and when do you know when to kind of be big and explosive as a person and when to be very quiet and let them lead it? This comes back to what I was saying earlier about being able to read people. Mm. Um, I, I'm an empath through and through. So um, for the most part, especially one-on-one, I can usually get a sense of what they want from me in terms of matching or countering. Um, it's harder on a film set when you have so many people around and so many personalities in, and, and so many sort of people between you and them. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if I'm asking for, for a shot in the middle of a shooting day, not when we've set up and it's just for me, if I'm going in and asking for something or, or positioning myself, you know, during a take, uh, I, I try as much as I can to find little moments of just me and them. Um, obviously not when they look like they're in the corner rehearsing their lines. Yeah. Um, you know, try to find a moment when they're laughing, when they're comfortable. And, and every time a, a new cast member comes to set, I do my best to get there before they get to set and introduce myself first. Um, and say, you know, how do you feel about stills? Are you comfortable? You know, I find that immediately sets a tone with them that you respect them and that you're not just, a lens in their face. It's going to be quite difficult having lenses constantly, you know, I, I realize it's what they do for a living. So they've chosen that, but also that's, 
if you don't trust the person on the other side of it, that can be quite um, unsettling. Yeah. And I think I, I respect that. I wouldn't, I don't, I hate having a camera pointed at myself. Absolutely hate it. I can direct all day, but you point a camera at me and I literally curl up in a ball. Um, the, the director and DP on Delia tried it with me. They nicked my camera and pointed it at me and I ducked and covered physically, right. um, much to their amusement. So um, I do, I understand that that's how they might be feeling. And so I approach it in terms of the way that I think I would want someone to approach me, I, you know, gosh, I sound like my mum. <laughs> Treat people how you want to be treated. You know, that's sort of what I grew up with. So um, I think that's just, yeah, it comes down to reading people and and getting a feel for um, whether or not they're comfortable. Yeah. And again, if they've had a bad experience and then taking the time to show them otherwise. Um, I did a wedding last year where I, I, as I took my first step onto the church grounds, and I think people that aren't English, and this has quite a large viewers, uh, listenership, listenership, viewership, whatever. There's a lot of people listening that are not from England. It's uh, quite big in Germany, it appears, and quite big in Australia and so on. Ooh. Hello, Aussies and Germans. Exactly. Um, <laughs> very kind of you to be here. I'm not going to attempt to do accents because it will be offensive. But you don't really know intimidation until you meet a British member of the church who are like <gasps> so simultaneously sick of you and lethargic about life. And it's, there's a very strange dynamic. There are, there, are, there are like five people at once, members of the British church quite often. Lots of times they can be very nice, but there was one wedding I did last year on the South Coast where literally, uh, this was it this year? I literally stepped foot on the church grounds and my first step, a head appeared from outside the, the door like I'd stepped on a sensor and she said, I don't like you. That was her first words to me. I don't like you. And I said, okay, I, I mean, I, I've met me so I can understand it, but I feel like we could at least try this. And she said, I don't like photographers. I've had nothing but bad experiences with them. I was like, well, if you've started every conversation with them with, I don't like you, I imagine it, we're it's not meeting why. at the same point. Yeah. And the whole experience was like, I was a scumbag. Do not appear in her eye line. Do not appear. Do not exist. If you could, if you could at all try that, just don't exist. And um, and at the end of it, when uh, when we were leaving, I, I I was outside the church taking some pictures, and and she came outside and she said, "Oh, I just want to say a massive thank you for you, like following the rules and staying out of the way. Um, you're one of the photographers I like." And I said to her, you might be the most miserable human being I've ever met and I can't stand you. And she laughed and walked off. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre. I have, I have a weird question. I don't know if you're going to want to answer this. Try me. Any onset mistakes or... or tons any, of them. Tons of them, surely. Any, any that jump out as being particularly hilarious or terrible? Fortunately, none that's ever gotten me fired. So nothing so dramatic <laughs> that's a good start. that I've, you know, I've definitely been in a shot. You know, um, I, I, I'm again. I'm seasoned enough at being on a film set and and doing this job that I I cover all my bases all day, every day. I always ask, "Can I be here? What is the angle? Can I watch the rehearsal?" Um, unfortunately, these days, quite a lot of filmmakers like to change it on the day, and right. it, you know, it doesn't matter how much you prepare they still swing the camera around and all of a sudden the whole crew is in there. Um, so there's been the occasional moments where I've somehow ended up in the shot for that reason. But again, you know, they're, they're also for the most part aware that they've done that. So 
I just get a little nod saying, nope, you, you can end up in shop there. Um, right. It's never been because I'm, you know, not paying attention. And I'm just, I just have this feeling that I would, if I ever got the opportunity to photograph a film set, it would be like such an amazing moment and my brain wouldn't be able to function with it. And as I'm going to take my first photo, I'd sneeze in the middle of a take or something. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, we've all had that moment. Right. We've all had the moment where your phone's gone off. Oh God. Um, but then so has Tom Cruise, right? right? So like, I think that's where you have to kind of, <laughs> I, yeah, you've got to kind of not take it so seriously. I, I, I joke on set sometimes. Yes, there's a lot of money and it's a very high pressure scenario. Like a lot of is, ex- a lot is expected of a film crew in a very short window of time. So it's a very high pressure scenario with a lot of personalities, and um, my personal attitude is that at the end of the day, we don't work in a trauma ward at a hospital. Yeah. We're not actively saving lives. We might be down the road by, by you know, I know films and entertainment have a huge impact on people. And especially if you can work on positive films like June that have had a lot of outpouring of love of people saying what it's done for them. So, yes, I think what we do is important. In, in terms of influence, but we're not actively saving lives, right. right? So I quite often joke if I come onto set and it's all, everybody's like losing their temper and it's all getting a bit mental. Um, and I'll kind of turn around and go, oh my God, who died? Who died? Who's died? Right. Because right? it just sort of reminds people like nobody has. So I mean, Americans must love you because you have that British dryness that Americans can't oh, deal with. no, they don't always understand. Yeah. I can't tell you the number of times when I, I but certainly also when I lived in the States, I had a bit of an American accent. The twang came in because I lived there from, you know, I was young when I was there. So um, I had it sort of beaten into me. But uh, so often in the States, I would have to explain myself. Yeah. No, no, no. Just kidding. Joke. Just a joke. Just yeah. being sarcastic. Or like I, I found myself like every time I've been in America, I make some comment about like... If people talk politics, I tend to give a dry response because especially like now politics is just such a rubbish subject to talk about anyway. And I would give a dry response and they would be like, really? Yeah, exactly. All right. No, I'm going to have to explain this entire scenario. So this is what I meant. Humans, humans in England are emotionally devoid of understanding of how to approach things. So we've built this entire language that works underneath the real language. I think it's the opposite. I actually think it's the opposite. I think... I think, as I said, sense of humor is a really, if it's done without being insulting um, or, or, you know, crass, I think a sense of humor can be a great way to broach a subject, but especially if you don't agree with somebody, you know, you can, you can find humor as a, as a bridge. Yeah. Um, so I actually think the Brits are, are far better at communicating with each other and with each other. I think we're very bad at adapting. <laughs> I mean, I'm married, I'm married to an Arab and they have a wonderfully dry sense of humor. My father-in-law is one of the most hilariously dry human beings I've ever met. He makes comments that just floor people. Lots of American friends that maybe you, you almost have, you almost need the laugh track from friends to help them understand when you weren't being serious sometimes. Well, so is that, but is that on us or is that on them? I think that might be on them, to be honest, but I'm, I'm doing what the British do and I'm being charitable about it. 
Sorry, 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 sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm yeah, so sorry. So, well, that's, I mean, you, if you say sorry, you can be Canadian, but we say, we just say sorry. We're sorry for everything. I mean, in England, I saw the other day that a legitimate sentence in England would be, can I, do you mind, can I just, all right, so, oh, sorry, take, cheers, sorry. And people, we know what that means. We, we know, we know what I've just done. Absolutely, I got you. Yes, of course you can. Go ahead. Um, so sorry for taking up so much of your time. You've been just unbelievably generous and this has meant the absolute world to me. Um, I have one more question and then I will go away, I promise. I often ask people to photograph people if there's a face that they would love to have in front of their camera and I get that same reaction. People can't see what you're doing right now, but you're doing the face everyone does when they try and think between the 20,000 people that suddenly come to mind. Puff of fish, eye roll to the head. Oh, God. But I would ask with you, because obviously you work on film sets as well, is there a, like a director or a particular f- film sort of series? I mean, I don't really like all of these cinematic universes. I find that incredibly boring. But is there a particular <laughs> thing? I wanted to work with Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. I can retire. Um, you don't have to um, show off. Now you're just making me feel bad. I know, sorry. But it's true. And before that, you know, it, it, Sicario, Blade Runner, Arrival, like his, his movies are stunning. And of course, I look at films from a visual perspective. Yeah. Um, and there are movies that I think are wonderful, but I don't necessarily look at them and go, oh, I'd like to photograph that. Um, his movies, I was like, I just I want to photograph it's needed in a film one day in my life. And uh, it's come around sooner than I'd ever imagined. Um, so I feel very fortunate that I've, I've managed to do that. Um, there it's, I think it's less of a specific person at this point and more certain projects that, that I don't even know exist yet. So, um, I can't say what it is or who it is, but there's a film that I know is going to go next year that, um, is a filmmaker and a subject that the two things combined, I, no, I want to be on that film set. Right. I know I want to photograph that. Based on the personnel or based on the subject or the combination. Right. I probably on the subject alone I would have, but um, but also knowing who's helming it. Um that that's also become a really important thing for me. Uh so we can both- safely assume then that that's zombies versus strippers too that you're looking forward to. <laughs> Do you know what? I've never photographed a porn film. So like things to accomplish in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> I've heard bad things from people that have. Oh God, I don't, yeah. Yeah, no, he told me things, honestly, for about a week, I just stared at a wall. No, thanks, I'm good. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it's it's become a a point for me and, and I realise I'm lucky enough to be able to say this because I've had the experiences that I've had. Um I, you know, that's not lost on me. Um, but I, I am at a point where I think the combination of all the things we've talked about today, where I have had all of these kind of crazy experiences and different kinds of films and different kinds of projects and different kinds of people, plus the impact of mental health and, and that whole side of me and my world and, and the things I think are important. Um, for me, it's really about the people that I work with. Um, that can absolutely make or break an experience and a project and a, and a job. Um, and the thing that from a childhood age that I knew was that I loved being part of the film crew. Right. And so that's what keeps me going. And if it, if somebody calls me up and says, I've got this subject, which is, you know, dull and boring, but it's this 
filmmaker and this camera crew and this sound operator and and it's all people that I adore count me in because that's six months of my life that I'm going to spend day in day out with a with a family um versus you know of the projects I've done some of them have been visually amazing but really really not great experiences behind the camera so at this point in time, it's less about a specific face and more about the personalities. And I would follow both Denis Villeneuve and uh, another director named Ronaldo Marcus Green, who I just did King Richard with. Yeah, I mean, I'd follow both of them onto any project. Like they could tell me we're going to go photograph cardboard boxes, and I would be there um, because it trickles from the top down. And they are they are just absolute creative talent. Yeah, also wonderful human beings. So. Um, yeah, in terms of an actual subject or face, I think I'd love to work with Meryl Streep, but then they say, don't, don't, what's the phrase? Don't meet your heroes. Yeah. They'll they'll tell you that you can control the universe with your mind and they'll ruin it. (laughs) I mean, I've, I've, I've only ever heard wonderful things about her, which makes me still really want to work with her. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's what it's become for me. You know, I, I got to work with, with Will Smith and he was absolutely brilliant. He was another one who, you know, you want to be in my eye line? That's fine. Just stay there. Be my eye line while I'm crying. You know, I absolutely generous, wonderful human beings. So I've been really fortunate to see what life is like on a film set when you have that kind of crew and cast. Yeah. And I, that, if I can stay with that forevermore, I'll be a happy girl. So now uh, I said at the beginning of this, I would freak you out with a couple of things where we have a connection. Yes, tell me. They're rubbish, but they are interesting. Don't um, tell me. <laughs> so the the time that you were uh, like harnessed up and on top of a bridge in London filming Mission Impossible, uh, photographing Mission Impossible. That's been more than one occasion. So am I, was I, this is, you found this on Instagram, yes? Uh, yes. Am I in full high vis? I believe so. Then I know which one you're talking about. Okay. Uh, I was under the bridge. Stop it. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I was on a photo walk with some, some people that I'd been on workshops with as like a bit of a, a get out and do something, you know, for the day. And yeah. we had, we saw the, the commotion going on around it and we actually ended up underneath the bridge watching what was going on. So. Oh, brilliant. We've been extremely geographically close, but also very strangely, you have a photograph of, of a bizarre bench on your Instagram as well in Littlehampton. Yeah. Uh, which was about three or is about 300 foot away from my old front door. Oh. So when I saw that on your, on your thing, I was like, Oh God, she's been to Littlehampton. Oh no. Why would you I go to Littlehampton? Oh my God, it's beautiful. Really, really like the little seafood um, shack yep. down on the edge. That's yep. what we came for. That's, then- that's literally, I lived on that street about 300 meters away from that shack. Oh, why would you move away? So beautiful. Oh, because I wanted to move to a place in Hampshire where everyone speaks like an East Londoner because they saw it on the TV and they don't know how to have real accents anymore. Um, so yeah, we have kind of weirdly been geographically close and it kind of freaked me out considering I found you through the, the mental health thing and through the the June thing that just, I literally didn't know anyone that had been to Littlehampton and you've been there and we're doing this. So it's very strange. I love it. You've been unbelievably kind. I, I just honestly, I, I hope you understand how much this means. Um, what I want to do is make sure people know where they can go to see your wonderful photography and uh, where they can go to definitely donate, please. 
So um, how would you like me to do that? Would you like me to give you links? You can, you can say websites to me now. Okay. Well, my, my website, if you're just looking for that, um, which really needs updating, <laughs> um, is just my name. So it's chiabellajames.com. Yep. Um, the uh, GoFundMe fundraising page for the book that I'm doing, because obviously I haven't revealed the book yet because I'm still photographing it, um, is it's quite a sort of a funky link. So if you just go to my Instagram, yep. it is, you'd find it on my Instagram. It's in, in the link in the bio. And on um, Instagram, your at is. Oh yes. Right. Uh, at CBJ underscore photo. Amazing. Please understand how much this has meant to me. It's been amazing. Oh, it's um, been a you're, pleasure. A, you're a wonderful human being. Thank you so much. Well, thanks very much for having me.